I'm glad to be worshipping with you on Synod Sunday, and I bring you greetings from the Synod, as well as from True Way Presbyterian Church English Congregation. The story has been told of a church looking for a pastor. After a few candidates had been vetted and interviewed, a candidate preached and wowed the church. The search committee joyfully met with the potential pastor and said, we are in agreement that you are the man God has called to pastor our church. On the very first Sunday of the pastor's ministry, he walked to the pulpit, opened up his Bible, and preached a powerful sermon that was biblically sound, theologically accurate, and applicable to the congregation's everyday life. And people in the pew nudged each other and said, this is just who we needed. On the second Sunday, he walked to the pulpit, opened up his Bible, and preached a powerful sermon that was biblically sound, theologically accurate, and was applicable to the congregation's everyday life. Yet it was the same sermon from the week before. Though a little strange, the congregation did not mind much. Each person remarked about the depth of Scripture and how they learned something new in the second hearing of the same sermon. On the third Sunday, the pastor walked to the pulpit, read the same passage and preached the same sermon. While the congregation was confident that this man was the preacher God had called to their church, they grew a little concerned. A few church members approached a group of deacons and told them, if he has the audacity to preach that sermon one more time, you need to have a talk with him. On the fourth Sunday, the pastor walked to the pulpit, read the same passage and preached the same sermon. After the service, the deacons requested a few moments of the pastor's time. He invited them into his office and asked, what can I do for you, brothers? They answered, We are a bit concerned that you keep preaching the same sermon every Sunday. Our question is, do you have another sermon? The preacher took off his glasses, folded his arms, and responded, I do have another sermon, but the church hasn't obeyed the first one yet. I want to say up front that I'm not referring to your church. <laughs> but I do want to say that what you're going to hear in my sermon may sound familiar. Truth and love. And perhaps if the sermon is indeed familiar, let it reinforce what you already know and spur you on to practice truth and love even more faithfully. Come, let us pray. <clears throat> May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. If you have a Bible or your gadget, I'd really like to invite you to turn to 2 John, right? It's found towards the end of the New Testament. It's a very short letter, and I'll make reference to the text time and time again. So verse 1, 
Verse 1 starts with the elder to the elect lady and her children. And the elder here likely re refers to the Apostle John. The earliest church tradition from the second century onwards testified in unison that this letter and its companion, third John, were written by the apostle, not by a mysterious and unknown elder. In fact, this was not the only place where an apostle used the term elder for himself. So Peter also referred to himself as an elder in his first epistle, you know, when he says, so I exalt the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you. So the apostles saw themselves as shepherds of God's flock, first calling themselves elders. The elect lady was likely a personification of a particular local church, and her children would refer to the members of that church. And that is why in verse 13, right, the very last verse of the letter, it says, the children of your elect sister greet you. And that will likely refer to members of another local church, right, where John was based when he was writing this letter. And scholars tell us that uh, this local church would likely be in Ephesus, the church of Ephesus. Now, the two words that appear again and again are truth and love. And we see that these two virtues are inseparable. We have to practice them together. Truth without love will result in legalism. And love without truth becomes the license to commit all sorts of sins. But we ask ourselves, right? firstly, what is truth? What is truth? Now, if you want to follow the sermon via the sermon outline, it can be found in the bulletin, right? and I'll follow uh, what is in the bulletin closely. So what is truth? Truth is an attribute of God. Verse 1 again, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, whom I love in truth. And that could mean that John loved them genuinely or truly. But more likely, it means whom I love in Christ. Truth can be substituted for Christ. Since in John 14, 6, John recorded for us Jesus saying, I am the way the truth, and the life. And moreover, the Holy Spirit is also the spirit of truth. And Hebrews 6.18 tells us that it is impossible for God to lie. And so truth is embodied in God. It proceeds from the nature of God. It is an attribute of God. Since truth can refer to Jesus, or the Holy Spirit, it's no wonder that in verse 2, John can say that the truth abides in us and will be with us forever. The Holy Spirit abides in us, since the Spirit indwells us. And that's how Jesus can be with us forever, like what he promised us in the Great Commission. And lo, 
I'm with you always. So truth can refer to God, but truth can also refer to the truth of the gospel. Since Jesus is the truth, truth is about the person and work of Jesus. The person of Jesus, who he is, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. The work of Jesus, what he has done for us, he has redeemed us, he has saved us from the condemnation of sin and death through his incarnation, through his death, through his resurrection. Remember his incarnation, the Son of God becoming a human being and living among us so that he's able to empathize with us in all our sufferings. His death, you know, when he was crucified on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins. And he's able to do that because he's without sin. He's the perfect son of God. He lived in complete obedience to God when he walked on this earth. And that's why he is the only one who could bear our sins upon himself when he died on our, be on our behalf in our place. And then his resurrection, him rising from the dead on the third day, so that when we put our faith in Jesus, death does not hold sway over us. And we walk in newness of life. We are a new creation. This is the gospel that we know. This is the truth of the gospel that we have embraced. So what is truth? Truth refers to God, refers to the truth of the gospel, and truth is about the will of God as revealed in the word of God. And it includes all the promises of God, the commandments of God, everything that's written down for us in the Bible. Jesus prayed for his disciples, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. So that's the first question. What is truth? Right? Truth can refer to God, to the gospel, and to God's word. Secondly, what do we do with the truth that we know? So verse 1 again, the elder to the elect lady and the children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. So what do we do with the truth? We want to know the truth. And that is tantamount to knowing God, to knowing the gospel, and to knowing God's word. And it's not just knowing. Right? Knowing the truth is also about believing. So it's not just about knowledge, but also belief. So that's the starting point of our salvation, right? When the spirit of truth convicts our hearts and opens our eyes, that we come to know and believe in the truth of the gospel and put our faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that's when we are saved. But we don't stop there. You know, God wants us to grow in the knowledge of his word because his word sanctifies us. His word is able to transform us. And as Christians, the Holy Spirit abides in us. The spirit of truth will continue to reveal to us the sins in our lives, you know, even as we read the Word of God. 
so that when we confess our sins and when we repent of our sins, we'll be transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. And so I hope, you know, it's our constant prayer that we will be spirit-filled and word-soaked. You know, we pray that we will continuously come under the influence of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, right? Paul exhorts us to be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5. And we also want to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. And that's Paul's exhortation to us in Colossians 3. And the consequence is the same, right? The consequence of Spirit-filled and, and Word-soaked is the same. If you, if you check out Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, we will be filled with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And that's the vertical dimension. And we'll be able to build one another up in the faith. And that's that horizontal dimension. So this brings me back to something that is not new. Something that's very familiar. And perhaps we need to hear it again and again and yet again like the same old sermon. And that's the importance of knowing God. Knowing the gospel. Knowing God's word. Of being word-soaked through our spiritual discipline of listening to the preaching of His word through the spiritual discipline of reading, of studying, of meditating on the gospel, the truth of the gospel, on, on God's truths that are found in the Bible. Right? So there's not anything new, right? We heard it again and again and again. The challenge is, have we been able to cultivate this spiritual discipline? I know we are busy, really busy lives, but however busy we are, we, we must carve out time for these spiritual disciplines, which are crucial for our spiritual growth. You know, if we care so much about our personal grooming, our academic pursuits, our career advancement, and you know, we sometimes go all out to try and attain the goals that we have set for ourselves in all these areas, how much more? How much more our spiritual growth, which counts in eternity. And it's about growing in intimacy with our Lord and Saviour who loves us so much. You know, if we do find ourselves lacking in, in these spiritual disciplines, uh, perhaps we can find an accountability partner. Perhaps someone from our small group, from our DG, and then we can regularly spur each other to share how God has spoken to us through His Word. You know, we can text each other our quiet time reflections during the weekdays. We can have spiritual conversations after the worship service on those parts of the sermon that the Spirit of God has convicted us of. Find someone. Find someone whom we can be accountable to. And then we can spur one another, you know, to cultivate Right, our love for Jesus through all these very important spiritual disciplines. And this year, we have been focusing on the theme, Strengthening Faith, Strengthening Family. I know it's a theme that uh, ARPC right, has embraced, and it's also the theme that the Synod has embraced because 
Pastor Christian is the Synod moderator, right? If we are serious in wanting to strengthen our faith, then lead a word-soaked life. Paul tells us faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. And so let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. If we want to strengthen our family, lead a word-soaked family life. For example, husband and wife can read the Bible together, parents with their children. In fact, Moses in Deuteronomy 6 told the parents, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to God's word. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are on the road, when you are going to bed and when you are getting up. You know, that's a picture of a word-soaked family life. You know, parents, we may have plan out back-to-back enrichment classes for our children. But how much effort have we put in when it comes to enriching our children spiritually? We are the main disciple-makers of our children, not the Sunday school teachers, not the youth leaders. I want to say that if we falter along the way in terms of not being able to observe that regular devotional time with God, either individually or as a family, do not despair. Do not beat ourselves up. We just pick up where we have left off. It is not that God will love us less when we don't read His Word. It is just that we are depriving ourselves of knowing Him better, of knowing the truth of the gospel, of knowing the truth contained in his word, of knowing his will, of knowing his promises. And all these are means of grace for our sanctification, for our growth. Every meal we have eaten in the past contributed to our physical growth up until now. Even though we may not remember what we have eaten. Can you remember what we have eaten yesterday? Maybe can. Can you remember what you have eaten last Sunday? Maybe still can. Two Sundays ago? A month ago? Likely not. Some meals may be very memorable, right? Because uh, it was eaten in a nice restaurant, in a company of wonderful people. We may remember those meals. But most of the time, we will have forgotten all the physical meals that we have eaten. But each meal was important in nourishing our body and sustaining our physical body up to today. And it's going to be the same with each intake of God's Word. Can you remember last Sunday's sermon? Maybe can. Two Sundays ago? Maybe not. How about the last yes? Bible study that you did in your DG, or yesterday's quiet time. Can you remember? It's good for some of us, I know. We have have cultivated the spiritual discipline of journaling. And journaling is good because when we cannot remember, we go back to the journal and we can then recall what God has spoken to us previously. But for most of us, we cannot remember. But every time, Each intake of God's word helped to nourish our soul and to sustain our spiritual life up until now. And therefore, the more regular 
right? You, you partake of God's word. You read, you listen to, you study, you meditate. It will go a long way to build our spiritual life, to strengthen our faith. Now, what do we do with the truth? We know the truth, we believe the truth, but we also want to walk in the truth. Verse 4 tells us, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. And walking in the truth means walking according to Jesus' commandments. Verse 6, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. And walking according to Jesus' commandments means obeying his commandments. The metaphor of walking is a good way to describe living the Christian life. And the phrase according to paints a picture of the old balance scale. John's point is that our behaviour should balance out with what God says our behaviour should be. Our behaviour should be according to what God has commanded us to do. And Jesus has commanded us to love one another. You know, again, back to the Gospel of John, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So, walking the truth means walking according to Jesus' commandments. His commandment is for us to love one another. Therefore, walking the truth also means walking in love. Right? The two are inseparable. Now, it's interesting, right, in, in verse 5, why did John say that it is not a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning? Well, it was a new commandment when Jesus first gave it to his disciples. We read it just now. But when John wrote here, right, what John wrote here was not new anymore. It was the one commandment that Jesus had told them right from the beginning. So again, the exhortation to love one another it's not new. It's very familiar. But we need to hear it again and again and yet again. That's why John wasn't writing them a new commandment. He was writing to the church to remind them of the commandment that Jesus had given them from the beginning. And I guess as I share the word of God with you, I'm again reminding you of the commandment that Jesus had given us right from the beginning. Love one another. You know, if we flow with the Holy Spirit, there's just limitless ways how we can show love to one another. It's not possible for me to dictate to you, but just for some suggestions, right, which I want to say are not exhaustive, not comprehensive. Let me just suggest three ways that you can be thinking about. Love not just with our lips. Love not just with our lips. In 1 John, you know, John says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love is an action word. Now, let our love be actual devotion expressed in concrete actions. Otherwise, we will be like you know, a certain young man 
who spent an entire evening telling, telling, right, telling a girl how much he loved her. He said that he could not live without her, that he would go to the ends of the earth for her, yes, go through fire for her or die for her. However, at the end of the date, as he bid goodbye to his girlfriend, he said, I'll see you tomorrow night if it doesn't rain. So here the young man paid a lot of lip service. But when the rubber meets the road, if it did rain, he wasn't going to show up. And so, love not just with our lips. Love with actions. And there are many things you can do to show love in action. And let's begin with the willingness to sacrifice our time, our precious time. You know, especially in giving up your time to listen to others. Actually, listening is a very, very important ministry. We are very interested to, to talk, not so interested to listen to one another. You know, as a pastor, even in counselling, I speak very little. I just listen. I may ask a question or two to draw the person out. You know? And at the end of the day, you know, the person will come and thank me for the time spent you know, I say how helpful it was. But actually, I didn't say very much. So learn, learn to listen to each other. Don't be too quick to jump in to fix their problems. You know, when we do that, we actually show our impatience. We show that we don't have time for them. You know, that's why we want to quickly solve their problem and then move on. Perhaps if we listen long enough, we'll be able to offer a helpful suggestion. Someone said that love is spelled T-I-M-E, not L-O-V-E, but T-I-M-E. Love not just our friends. We are to love our enemies as well. Don't just love one another. We want to love the other. Who, who are they? Who are the other? Some may consider foreigners in our midst as the other. The haves and the have-nots can see each other as the other. So do the rich and the poor, the educated and the not-so-educated. Right? They see each other as the other. What about those with learning disabilities? The ex-inmates, the migrant workers. Actually, the list goes on and on because our sinful hearts are quite bent on seeing those who are different from us as the other. Right? Those who are not our type, those who are not on the same frequency as us, we see them as the other. How can we embrace them, especially if they are our brothers and sisters in Christ? How can we love them as Christ has loved us? And love, not just based on our feelings, love by will, if there's a need to, and perhaps the feelings may follow. And this applies to those close to us, like our spouses. Even if we don't feel like loving our spouses, we can still show love by will, sometimes by our sure will. And it can also apply to how we treat the other. You know, even if we feel that we want to avoid them when we see them in church, you know, when we see them coming in our direction, we kind of like detour, 
when we don't feel like engaging with them, again, by our sure will, approach them. Initiate a conversation with them. Show them an act of kindness. And even if the feelings don't follow, it is okay. When I say we, we love by will, perhaps the feelings may follow. But even if the feelings do not follow, it's okay. It will be another opportunity for us to deny self, to carry our cross, which is good for our sanctification. Coming back to the theme, strengthening faith, strengthening family. You know, surely when we are able to love one another in genuine ways, our faith in God will be strengthened. Often, we experience the love of God through the love of His people. And when we know that we are loved by God, our faith in Him will be strengthened. I just attended a Christian mental health conference last Thursday, Friday, and I heard a testimony of a pastor whose daughter has attempted suicide uh, because of depression. And then he shared how he had been so well supported by God's people. You know, they gave him space to share his heartaches. And that, that means they gave him time. They listened to his stories. They listened without passing any judgment. You know, they rendered practical help in emergencies, in providing transport because he doesn't drive. And they would give him a timely word of encouragement. And through the love they showed him, right, this pastor experienced the love of God and his faith was very much strengthened. You know, even within the family, if husband and wife love each other as Christ has loved them and provide a loving environment for the children to grow up in, if parents uh, love their children, you know, by setting a model of Christ's love for them, if members of the family readily forgive each other as God in Christ has forgiven them, wouldn't the family, the family bonds, be strengthened? I've asked the question, what is truth? Right, Truth refers to God, the truth of the gospel, refers to God's word. What do we need to do with the truth? We want to know the truth, believe the truth, walk in the truth. And because knowing the truth means knowing what Christ has commanded us and Christ has commanded us to love, walking in the truth means walking in love. The last question, why do we need to walk in truth and love? Well, if we walk in truth and love, we'll definitely be able to strengthen our faith and we'll be able to strengthen our family. But coming back to this text, it's very interesting, right, that the first part of this letter, so much is, um, emphasis is given to truth and love. But the second part has to do with John warning the community of false teachings. And my question is, what's the link? What's the link? Look at verse 7. It says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such is one, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Also, some background knowledge of the deceivers. These were some former church members who had left the fold and were teaching heresies. And what were they teaching? They claimed that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. 
So they were likely the early Gnostics who believed in dualism between uh, matter and spirit. So they believed that matter is evil, spirit is good. So if Jesus Christ were to have come in the flesh, which was matter, he would be evil, which was outrageous to them. So one theory they had was that Jesus was human, Christ was spirit. And it was Christ who descended on Jesus at his baptism. And that's why he could do all those miraculous stuff. But Christ departed Jesus just before his crucifixion. So these Gnostics separated the divine Christ from the earthly Jesus. Right? The, the Christ spirit could not become contaminated with evil flesh. So at worst, it will only assume evil flesh temporarily. Now, this teaching is, is heretical, right? Its implication is disastrous because if Jesus was separated from Christ and if Jesus was evil, how could he be the perfect Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world? So, his sufferings on the cross would amount to nothing. Right? Jesus Christ has to be truly God and truly human for him to die in our place to atone for our sins. Nowadays, uh, we don't grapple with this heresy. Don't grapple much with this heresy, but heresies of all sorts still abound because the spirit of Antichrist is actively at work and more so as we anticipate the return of Christ. But I want to come back to that question I asked, what's the link you know, between the first part where John exalted the people to walk in truth, walk in love, and then he warned them of the deceivers? Well, the clue is in the word, the very first word of verse 7. And the word is for. And for also means because. And so John Piper right, points out that we need to walk in love and truth for, that is the best protection against false teaching. Or because, that is the best protection against false teachings. And let me just quote uh, John Piper with a slight paraphrase. He says that the truth of Christ, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the word of God is the air in which our love lives and flourishes. It's the granite rock foundation on which our love rests. If we love Christ with all our heart and we love his word with our very soul, and if Christ and his word is preached with heartfelt faithfulness over the years in this church, what else can happen but love? And so it will be with all those around you who love the truth. Christian love is not mushy. It is solid affection for those who love and share the truth of Christ. It's the knitting together of souls with deep, solid affection because week after week and month after month and year after year, we have shared precious truth. And so, if we want to guard against heresies, faithfully preach the word of God and dearly love each other. And if amongst us, you know, we realize that some of brothers and sisters have been deceived Right, because you know, they have been tuned into um, the, the, the internet and internet provides us with all sorts of strange teachings and you know, uh, some people without much discernment might be just lapping them up and we, if we know that you know, uh, there are brothers and sisters right, who have embraced false teachings, 
it is our responsibility to try and lead them back to the truth by speaking the truth in love. But sometimes we fear to speak the truth because we uh, fear that it will damage right, the relationship. But if we truly love our brothers and sisters, we would want to exercise patience, to hear them out, right, to hear their stories without being too quick to condemn. And that requires time. And we need to listen to them intently before we even attempt to dismantle uh, their false beliefs so as to win them over. In this way, we'll be able to not only help the person to grow in his faith, we also help to preserve the unity of the spiritual family since false teachings can have the danger of dividing the church. Now, but if um, they are strong proponents or strong advocates of all these strong, uh, of these false teachings, and even after we have spoken to them, they will not budge, they will not change their mind, then we will have nothing to do with them. Right? We do not want to support the ministry of false teachers in terms of giving them space and money to spread their heresies. So we, we won't uh, want to invite them to grace our pulpit. We wouldn't uh, be giving towards their work. You know, so yes, we are called to love our, uh, our enemies, but love must be within the limits that truth allows. And that's why in verse 10 and 11, you know, John had to warn the true believers to stay away from the false teachers. Do not receive them into their houses or even greet them. Otherwise, they will be seen as taking part in their wicked works. Let me conclude. By looking at John himself, you know, he practiced truth and love. He walked his talk. How did he do that? He started the letter by telling them he loved them. Right? Says the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And he assured them of his love for them before moving on to warn them of the false teachers and to tell them not to have anything to do with the false teachers. And that's the truth bit. In our responsive reading, uh, Jesus did the same with the rich young man. Mark recorded for us, and Jesus, looking at the rich young man, loved him. He loved him. And then Jesus said the truth in love to him. Sell all that you have and give to the poor. And so whenever I have to confront someone over a difficult issue, I always start by letting the person know that I'm having this conversation with him because I love him. So you walk in love and in truth. And secondly, John wanted to speak with the church face to face. Look at verse um, 12, right? I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon. This is again something that we can emulate, especially when we need to address people over thorny matters. Speak face to face. That's another way of showing love. Right? Instead of using email, WhatsApp, which is very prone to miscommunication. So there we are. John himself writing about truth and love, and he showing it right, for us to see. So may the Holy Spirit enable us to walk in the truth, to walk according to Jesus' commandments, and since Jesus has commanded us to love one another, 
So walking in truth also means walking in love. For truth and love, they are inseparable. Let us pray. Let's just spend some moments, uh, make, make a response to the Lord after we have heard His word. Trust that the Holy Spirit of God has spoken the word of God into our hearts. Something that your heart is resonating with. Respond to the Lord in prayer. Give you some time to do that before I close. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, by your grace, let our lives be spirit-filled and word-soaked so that we will walk consistently in truth and love. And surely our faith will be strengthened and the unity of our church and family preserved as we grow in Christ-likeness for the glory of your holy name. Amen.